Welcome back to another episode of Ruby for All. Julie, what's up? Remember last week when I said I was sick? Yes. I was in bed for half the weekend. Damn. Are you feeling better at least? I am feeling better now. Better than the weekend and better than last Monday when you told me to stay go to bed, bed, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Begged her. Begged her to stay in bed, actually. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. So hopefully back to 100% soon because you have traveling soon, right? I do too. So we want to be in tip-top shape for getting on an airplane for eight hours. Um, right. Yeah, I know. As West Coast and to East Coast. Did you hear like the enthusiasm in my voice as I thought about that? <laughs> cool. Well, without further ado, today on the show, we have Dave Paola. Dave, welcome to the show. Founder of Sierra Rails. You want to give a little introduction? Yeah. Amped to be here. I appreciate you guys bringing me on and hopefully we have a fun conversation. I'm Dave and I run a very teeny tiny Maybe I should call it a boutique custom software development agency called Sierra Rails. As you can guess by the name, we are a Ruby on Rails shop. That is our obviously preferred technology choice. I have a background in online developer boot camps from back in the day. And now I spend my time trying my best to coach junior developers or early career developers so that they can either kickstart or jumpstart their career or make whatever progress they'd like. Do you find that people prefer early career more than junior? Because I've heard this like shift in language recently, but everything has shifted in language recently. So I'm wondering, is this something we're all doing now? Like, what's up? I certainly prefer early career developer. I've actually never had to answer the question of why. It's mostly just been an intuitive thing for me. Junior developer feels hierarchical. It feels like it, it doesn't accurately describe the best early career developers I've ever worked with. And I've worked with quite a few. The developers that I've worked on that you would call junior in any other context are of a variety of ages, a variety of backgrounds. Many times they have actually superior skills to what you might say is like a computer science graduate in terms of communication skills, maybe in terms of experience working with other types of people, other types of roles, designers, product managers, all the stuff that You know, you have to learn on the job if it's your first job out of college. So early career developer, I feel more accurately, I don't know, communicates and describes who they are and where they are in their career. I also am a big believer in language shaping how we think and how we set examples in the world, or at least aspire to. (laughs) I'm a big fan of David Marquet, who's a former U.S. submarine naval captain. And he has a whole management leadership philosophy that's all about leadership as language. So. Interesting. Julie, what do you prefer? It's very interesting that you ask that because I had started shifting as well. And I don't know where I picked it up the term from like early career dev, but I started trying to use early career dev over junior developers. I feel like there's maybe like a negative connotation. I don't want to say negative connotation, but I do feel like I don't call myself a junior because I don't feel like I'm young. And mm-hmm. sometimes when you think of junior, you're thinking like a younger person. So that was my main reason for switching over to early career dev. Well, I guess I'm changing now too. I followed Julie here. I think it's interesting. Like one of the things I think is relevant is when you ask people or you ask hiring managers or software engineers on teams, if they're hiring juniors, that feels like a different question to me than are you hiring early career folks? Now I might be off my rocker there, but that's, I feel like that's an important, like being on the receiving end of a question like that 
the two terms just feel substantially different to me. And I can't articulate why exactly they feel different in any case, but I do think that's an important dimension to it. Well, we won't ask you to nitpick the nuances of language here. That is interesting though. I'm glad (laughs) I asked that question. But we are here to talk mostly about early career developers and your expertise kind of in that. And you just started a book you were telling us, but it kind of evolved into something I think that sounds very useful to everyone. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I started, I don't remember where this idea came from, but I've been kind of unplugged from the camp industry for a while. I spent a lot of time in it early on in my career. And without going into too much detail, we can talk about that at a later date if it's interesting. But but basically... I, for some reason or another, can't leave this particular segment of the world behind. Partially, it's altruistic. You know, I like paying it forward. I've had some really great people in my career help me out. But partially, it's also like, I still think there is a gigantic opportunity here. Despite the proliferation, the fragmentation, and then sounds like a little bit of a consolidation of the boot camp industry. And we all kind of might have our own opinions on how that has shaped up. I do still think that there was a company that we always hoped our grads would get hired at. And that company was Pivotal Labs because Pivotal, if you all remember Pivotal back in the day, they hired in pairs. They had a really great approach. Every bootcamp wanted their grads to be hired at Pivotal if they were a Ruby on Rails bootcamp. And Pivotal's gone. There are a handful of agencies or companies that we can all probably name that we, if we were to be responsible for the placement of our grads somewhere where we'd want them to get hired, you know, ThoughtBot certainly comes to mind. Planet Argon comes to mind. There's a couple others, but they, none of them really have the same cachet as Pivotal did. And, you know, how naive am I? I wanted to like say, oh, I can build the next Pivotal, right? Like sell it for a billion dollars to some big giant corporation and have great outcomes for junior engineers. Wouldn't that be great? Now, obviously it's a lot harder than that. And that was kind of a deliberately naive thing. So the junior developer bootcamp was like this thing. I'm like, okay, well, I just started like drinking caffeine and writing out, okay, why do I think there's an opportunity here? And it starts with, well, why is it so hard to get hired as a junior? And why is it so hard to hire junior developers, right? And so exploring the sets of problems and honestly, like lack of solutions out there, I do feel like I have a not so unique approach that I have just copied from the great people that I've seen do it well in the past. And so I started writing the book. I realized that it was basically way too short to be a useful book. (laughs) Who knows, maybe someday there will be a book there. But for now, I basically have decided, okay, this is just something I should put out there for free and see what people think. So far, the response has been decent. I have not exactly promoted it. I wouldn't say that I've done any campaigns or haven't really put a lot of investment behind pushing it out there. It's more of a lead gen right now, to be honest with you, for I don't know what. (laughs) Yeah. Doesn't totally fit into the world of agency work. Like I'm not getting many clients leads from the junior developer bootcamp, but yeah, I'm just kind of going to see where it goes. Julie and I both came after the Pivotal Labs heyday. So by the time that we were in the industry, Pivotal Labs, I think may have still been there when I joined, but if it was, it was on its way out, definitely out by the time Julie got there. So what made them so prolific in like these days before we came? I don't know why they were so prolific. They were this very successful company that had, I never worked there. I I know people that have worked there and did, but I never worked there. And what I know is that most of the people that worked there raved about how great it was. They talked about the culture. They talked about the management, the leadership. It seems like it was just a really great organization run by great leaders and had good management. And how rare is that, right? Yeah. And it turns out, I think that is 90% of the battle. It's like, if you could have good managers and good leadership and a good culture, then turns out you can hire early career developers. You can hire developers of any stage in their career and good things will happen. I mean, tactically, I think like 
they had a couple key things that they did really well. One of them is what we mentioned earlier, like they hired everybody in pairs. They would do pair programming for, I don't know, 90% of the work or something like that. And they had a very high touch onboarding process. They had a very structured weekly process that they used, which is not going to be news to anybody listening to the podcast, you know, how they did their thing. They had their daily standups and their agile approach. And they even built their own software products to facilitate this, the Pivotal Tracker product, which I don't know, I haven't used it in years. I think it's still out there, right? I think so. They did iteration planning meetings. They called them IPMs instead of sprint planning. I believe they called them IPMs. I think they were just kind of opinionated and knew what they were doing. I have no idea how they were able to grow the business so rapidly. I would love to learn if there was a Harvard Business Review case study about Pivotal Labs. I would shell out a lot of cash for that case study (laughs) personally. Cool. Just curious. What ended up happening to them? They got bought, I don't know, five years ago, 10. I don't know how many years ago now they got bought by VMware. Yeah. Or I think that's right. Yeah, I think so. For a lot, and they've kind of kind of all splintered across like really big names. Like Raphael was there, right? I'm pretty sure this was Jose Belim's company, right? To be honest with you, I don't know that much about their management or their story. I wish I did. I've known people that worked in as developers there and as product managers, and I do remember talking to one of the PMs who was actually a student of ours later on. He basically told the story of what happens to most successful development agencies is that their clients got bigger and bigger. They went after enterprise more and more. And I think the technologies that those clients needed as subject matter expertise in were kind of mismatched to what I think like big Java shops, big Scala shops. I think they were able to pivot to the end towards more of a JavaScript heavy stack, if I recall correctly. But I do think they got away from the Ruby on Rails world though, unfortunately. I think many people will know them, or if they don't, they know now as the maintainers of device for a long time. Yeah. I kind of forgot about that, actually. Yeah. I know this because Raphael definitely worked there very early on in his career. For those who don't know, he is one of, if not the main contributor to Rails right now. Number one all time, I'm pretty sure. And Jose Valim created Elixir, created many very cool things. Actually, I think we were on the phone for him like three hours one morning for Remote Ruby. So I got insight into some of the Pivotal Lab stuff and it's starting to like come back to me a little bit. But yeah, nice. super cool. Maybe i love to learn about those stories. <laughs> hey there, I'm Andrew Mason and I've got an amazing gem to tell you about, Avo. It helps you build content management systems and internal tools with Ruby on Rails incredibly fast. You don't need to deal with any CSS or JavaScript files as Avo takes care of all the UI work for you resulting in a modern, mobile-first CRUD interface ready to deploy. Plus, it provides access to features almost every application needs, like actions, filters, search, sorting, active storage integration, dashboards, and much more. So if you're looking for an ultra-powerful and maintainable platform to build your next product or service, look no further. Avo harnesses the power of Rails, Hotwire, Tailwind, CSS, few components to provide you with a fast and easy-use stack the Rails way. Don't wait any longer. Visit avohq.io and give Avo a try today. You won't regret it. I'm curious about the pairing juniors together. I think you believe in that very strongly, right? Yeah. It's not that I believe in it very strongly, I would say. It's that I've just seen it work a hundred times better than hiring junior developers solo. It's just a, it's a heuristic. I feel like if you do nothing else, but you do that, then like your chances of success on both sides of that relationship just drastically improve. It almost doesn't matter why. If from a management perspective, if you're like an engineer on a team trying to persuade your employer to hire more folks who are early in their career, like if you can do nothing else but get them to hire two of them instead of one and finagle on the comp, shall we say, then if you can make that work, like 
I would bet you a lot of money that it'd be a successful outcome. Why? Well, if why doesn't matter, I, but I mean, it matters. I, I agree though, firmly. Let me say before we get into this, I came up like this. I was assigned to work basically with someone when we first started out and he became a close friend and he was the ice to my fire. And we ended up doing really great things at that company, built some really great software. We innovated. Now he's like, one of the leaders of a startup and I'm working at Podia as a senior engineer. So I think it worked out for us, but I am curious to know your experience as to why. So I think it has much to do with psychology and I'm not a psychologist. I took like psych 101 in college, but having watched this now unfold several times, I feel like I can tell a story of the opposite of this and then address how when you do hire in pairs, it just addresses all the problems that happen. So if you're a solo junior developer, you're often hired by a team. Maybe you're hired by a senior software engineer who wants to do good on their team. Or maybe you're hired by someone higher up in the org who wants to save some cash. And you're the alternative to going overseas. I think that's important to understand the decision-making process behind bringing a junior developer on. What happens is you have a team that has a questionable commitment to your success. In other words, like, did the team even know that you were coming on board? Is the team on board? with hiring someone who's early in their career? Are they open to being helpful? Does the management have a clear understanding of the time commitment? Basically, like, does the management expect you to come on and be equivalent to a regular engineer? And oftentimes the answer is that they don't have any idea what they're doing. They've heard maybe that they wanna help this person out and they bring you on and it's your first day and they throw you an invite to the GitHub repository. You read the readme, which is of course out of date because every readme is always out of date all the time. and you're immediately faced with a task that, first of all, is different than your day-to-day will be developing software. Getting the thing up and running the first time is always much, much harder than you know building your first feature or shipping your first bug fix or whatever it might be. And you're basically like thrown in the deep end, right? And there are a lot of cultures and organizations where that can work, but I think, I think it's an unsuccessful strategy for the most part with junior developers. Furthermore, you're the junior and you get stuck on your first day. But your first day, maybe the first hour, and you already might feel kind of like that imposter syndrome thing where you don't feel like you belong, like you're worthy of being on this team. Maybe you respect these people because you've followed them on social media for a while, or maybe this is just like your one big lucky break and you really don't want to mess it up. So you have all this baggage and they have all their baggage. And what happens is that you reach out to ask for help. And the first interaction that many of the people on this team have is with you needing help rather than you meeting and having a good conversation, introducing yourselves, or you showing how awesome you are by shipping your first bug within the first day to production. So if you contrast this, and this could just keep going, I think we can imagine, usually what happens in my experience is either the junior developer quits within the first week, two weeks, three weeks, and they realize I'm just not cut out for this work. This isn't what I expected. And I don't seem to be well liked at this organization. Nobody is helpful. I'm going back to my job at the coffee shop or whatever. Now, if you contrast that with, okay, you're hired in pairs. So first of all, you have somebody else coming on board at the same time, ideally, who is roughly congruent with your skill level. And when you get stuck, you can ask them. You can ask them to pair up. Hey, can you jump on a Zoom call with me for five minutes while I can't get Homebrew and Redis to work together? I can't get Sidekick to talk to Redis. I can't get Webpacker to work. I can't get this. I can't get that. The hard friction points that all of us know and have come to love or hate you can get unstuck without bothering the senior people who may or may not be open to helping you. And so you just, right off the bat, you have a completely different dynamic at your new job. 
right? You have a buddy who comes up with you through this experience. And when you do have those communications or those interactions with your new colleagues, usually you're talking about is the stuff you've accomplished, not the kind of help that you need. I mean, I don't know the other side of it, but I do know what I experienced in computer science school, which was not very dissimilar of like we get into a certain class and I'm with my buddy and he's a couple of years older than me because I always hung out with like older kids and like the people who are there on like GI builds because I was like, these guys are serious. No one my age cares. I need someone serious to like do these projects with. And one day he kind of just looked at me and he's like, dude, I'm just not cut out for this. I can't figure this out. I just feel like there's not a place for me here. He needed a little extra help and the teachers weren't going to give it to him. He and I worked together on a lot of stuff and I tried to help him, but I saw a lot of people quit school just like him. I'm just not cut out for this. Just because of something that they were doing in school. Like the project we were working on when he quit was some advanced Java Tetris game BS. I didn't have to write a game in Java in my years as an engineer. I think it's kind of the same lines of like you put them in this impossible situation with not enough resources to help them succeed, not resources to help that type of person succeed. And you re-put you so. I mean, honestly, I think the one thing that you mentioned that I really like that Podia did incredibly well is the first week. One of my onboarding tasks was to have a five minute, 10 minute, 30 minute, hour long, didn't matter to them. But they wanted me to sit down with every engineer on the team, introduce myself, get to know them a little bit and just learn and meet the team I would be working on. So that my first experience wasn't, I can't get Redis working. And I thought that was great because it kind of established like playing field of who is this person? What are they like? What are they interested in? What are their specialties? What are they the unique person to go to with certain things? So I'm not just out there in the general chat like, hey, I can't get homebrew working. I can go to a very specific engineer that mentioned like, oh yeah, I'm obsessed with my dot files, which is me. Like that person will probably be able to help me. And so, yeah, I really like that you brought that part of it up because you're right. I've seen a lot of first engineers, their first sign is I need help. And to me, that's like, oh, cool. This person wants help. Let's go help. But to other people, that doesn't mean the same thing. I had forgotten that at Toad Academy, that's what happened with me too. Even though we joined as six apprentices together, we kind of split off into different teams. So it didn't feel like we were really a pair. I did have one other apprentice on the same team as me. I think we were the only two that ended up together. And I remember everyone set up one-on-ones with us to have a chat and get to know who those people are on the team. Did it help? Yeah, it helped a lot. I was going to ask this, but I'm curious how, if anything would different, like for example, with us, it was six apprentices, but we weren't all on the same team. So it wasn't a lot of me pairing with another apprentice. I didn't have a pair. It felt more like I had a group of people that we could talk to. And like the psychology of it made a lot of sense because it was very easy for us to be like, Hey, did you get your development environment working? I'm stuck on this. And like, there's five other people that I could chat about this with. And anytime we had something come up, it was very easy to ask a quick question to them when I wasn't quite comfortable asking in a public channel or even on our team. For a while, we were meeting every week at the end of the week, just to have like a recap and how we were all doing. And I really like that being able to have a conversation with somebody else who is starting out like this is a new career and there's five other people that I can share this story with. And it was really great. If I didn't have that, I don't know how successful I would be. Was that a one-on-one meeting or was that a group meeting with only the other apprentices or was it a larger group? 
I ended up meeting each one of them individually. I think I honestly don't remember. It's like been a year and a half now, but every week we met as a group and just shared any stories that we had. That's cool. We had a guy at my boot camp who we initially kind of poked fun at because of his enthusiasm and passion for the weekly retro meeting. And I have now come around to see things from his perspective. I think the weekly retro meeting is one of the most impactful practices that like any small team can engage in. Like it's one of those things, like in the same way, if like if you are an engineer and you kind of feel like your team has like maybe a lackluster culture, you're swimming all day and you try to make suggestions to the team's process and no one seems to be taking your suggestions and you can't quite figure out why you've been there for eight months. 11 months, you're deciding now I'm going to go look for a new job, right? Because I feel like I'm treading water here. I have had this conversation with people so many times where if they're able to make the organizational change, the teeny tiny organizational tweak to like have that weekly retro meeting run really well, like this can be transformational. It seems like the smallest thing, but if you put the autonomy and the responsibility onto the team to improve their own process and their own culture, then my God, it's like a, it's like a tidal wave. Cortland, if you're listening, Sorry, I made fun of you for the retro meetings because I'm on your side now. The number one reason startups fail is that they run out of money. There are so many ways for startups to lose money. Downtime should not be one. Recent studies found that downtime can cost $427 per minute for small businesses and up to $9,000 per minute for medium-sized businesses. That's every single minute. A monthly subscription with Honey Badger helps you prevent costly downtime by giving you all the monitoring you need in one easy-to-use platform so you can quickly understand what's going on and how to fix it, which helps you stay in business. Get started today in as little as five minutes at honeybadger.io with plans starting at free. Yeah, you heard me, free. A big thank you to Honey Badger for sponsoring this episode of Ruby for All. The retro meetings are interesting because we don't do retros at Podia. We have very few meetings, which I love because I hate meetings. Other companies, I've done weekly retros, but at Podia, every other week, we have a weekly developer meeting on Fridays where we go over maybe some organizational changes, but usually it's like a developer to present on something, a topic that they're interested in, or like some new workflow or patterns that they're trying in the app. And I have found those to be more helpful for me than a weekly retro, just because those meetings, I feel like, hey, as a team, we're coming together and we're going to have fun and we're going to talk about like cool tech. And maybe we don't have a specific topic and maybe we just talk about AI for an hour, which we did last Friday. But I do agree that like those end of week, bi-weekly, whatever, like getting your team together can be really helpful, especially for the juniors or early career developers on your team, just to bring about more of that camaraderie, especially as we're more and more remote. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it has to be super highly structured. Like the way we used to do it was, and I don't know how to replicate this remotely. Honestly, it's one of those things where it was really magical to have it in person. Every Friday at four o'clock, the responsibility of who would facilitate that week would rotate week by week. And whoever at the end of each meeting, we would play a little game to figure out who would run it next week. And their responsibility would first of all, to make sure that we had wine and cheese at four o'clock on Friday in the conference room, right? I don't know if if we would shame them. I don't know what the consequences were for failing, but we didn't fail that often because they felt like their whole team was depending on them. And how hard is it to go get wine and cheese? And we would show up and we would have this very lightweight process where the leaders didn't speak that often. We were present. In other words, like the managers and the leadership, we were there, but it was really important that people felt like they could say what needed to be said. And I found that to be really important because, you know, when you have really talented people all in the same group, they don't really always agree with each other. 
That's part of the point. You want the tension. You want the creative destruction a little bit. And without the weekly meeting, the managers bear the brunt of the stress and the difficulty of getting this group to work together. You have to have one-on-ones with everybody. And even if you're good at it, that's an exhausting thing. You have eight direct reports and they're all really opinionated and talented. Like that's a full-time job in itself, maybe two full-time jobs. And so if instead of the managers having to figure out how to solve this problem, if you get the group together and you get them to be honest and direct with each other about what they need and what they're feeling and their perspectives, you're doing it honestly, like with a glass of wine and the leaders are resisting the urge to jump in and try to solve all the problems for everybody. Let the problem sit, let the team figure it out. Is It's magical. It's like, like I said, it doesn't have to be super structured, but I think it's an invaluable practice. And we do it at Sierra Rails. We are imperfect at it. It's not the same as being in person. It's still very important. We have a, I think it's a bi-weekly engineering IC sync where there's no leadership and each team will come with things that may, they might be working on. We'll answer the question of what are some of our, maybe some of our blockers or something that was challenging for us. Anyway, I think it's a great place for all the engineers to get together and just be real because there's no leadership there and be able to share all of the challenges that they have. It's interesting about not having leadership there because what I found is that when you stick a bunch of people in a room, natural leaders emerge. And that's how you get to see some hidden strengths that you didn't know existed. Because someone's got to lead. Someone's got to like run the meeting to a degree. And that's your opportunity to see, oh, that person right there who is usually quiet, in the moment when there was no leadership and there needed to be some, that person rose up and took control. And that, I think, is a valuable thing to find out about your people. Yeah, preach. <laughs> we are getting close to the end, Dave. Is there anything else that we should have asked you or that you want to talk about before we wrap it up here? Well, one of the things I wanted to not miss the opportunity to mention is that one of the experiments that I'm running, and it is still very much an experiment, is a thing called the agency of learning. And right now, this is a totally volunteer-based pilot where I identify, screen, and recruit and onboard early career developers who are looking for their first job. Maybe they're bootcamp grads, maybe they're self-taught. We have both so far. And we bring them into a Discord community and we work on Ruby for Good Rails applications. Right now, we're working on the COS app, which is Court Appointed Special Advocate Program. It's a real code base and used by real users real organizations and it's open source and it's hosted by the Ruby for Good organization, but we run it like a real team. So it's all volunteer, but we have daily standups. We do code review and GitHub and we have our weekly retros and so forth. And it's going very well so far. We've only been at it for maybe a month. I'm now bringing in some career services folks or some job readiness stuff. <laughs> I don't really have a long-term goal for this thing. I just think it's important to have a community like that, that is staffed with some more senior folks as well. And right now we only have like five devs in there, plus the three coaches who are just people from my network that I've worked with before and who are really good at this. I don't know what it will evolve into, but I wanted to put the call out. If it's something that sounds interesting to you and you have five hours a week to spare to help either coach or you want to just kind of jump in and help some more early career developers with their craft help them get job ready, look at their resume, give them career advice and help them figure out how to build thin models and thin controllers and separate their business logic, then we'd love to have you. So just reach out to me, davisherrails.com. I'd love to chat. There is this huge, the whole conversation that we're having, that huge gap that I felt when I finished my boot camp and I felt like I was ready to apply. And then my first job, like I felt like I wasn't ready for a 
developer role. I was ready for an internship where I had more handholding and knew how it might work to work in a team. And I guess it's similar to if I had done open source before I started my first role. But I feel like the agency of learning is such a great idea and what I wish I would have had between me finishing my boot camp and starting my first role. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea. And it's one of those things like this needs to exist. I don't know yet if it is a profitable venture at all. I aspire to have it be placement-based or staffing-based where I can partner with some great companies that grow to trust me and the team. And they trust us because they've hopefully hired some great people from our community. I've already hired one of them. And by the way, it turns out to be a great way to do that. That's a great outcome for all. And so hope it will become something that can sustain itself. I'm not delusional. I know that it's not going to turn into Pivotal Labs anytime soon. But if we can just get some great people together, I bet something great will happen. So yeah, come join us. I really appreciate everything that you do for the community and for early career devs. You're welcome. Come join us. (laughs) Ditto. I've been watching you and knowing you online for a while and you've always been doing cool stuff. So it's great to finally meet you. Thank you for coming on the show. And thank you again to what Julie said for fighting the good fight for earlier career devs and for our entire community, really. So right on. Dave, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on. Where can people find you online if they want to keep up and find out more about what you talked about today? Yeah, I'm dpaola2, D-P-A-O-L-A-2 on Twitter. That's probably the easiest place. Or you can email me anytime. I try to respond to every email I get. It's tough, but please do it. Better man than me. (laughs) (laughs) have to teach you sometime. Cool. Well, everyone else, we'll catch you next week. Julie, see you later. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. See ya.